Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Just before we start today's show, uh, Mid-Atlantic listeners, I'd like to implore you to go over to our new YouTube channel. Yes, you've heard it. We finally are putting our shows up on YouTube. Quite simply, go to YouTube, search for Mid-Atlantic Podcast to subscribe to our channel. It's incredibly important that you do so for the sake of the algorithm. Some jiggery poke, which I don't quite understand, but you can watch all the episodes there. And please, for the love of all things holy, please subscribe to the channel because it really will help me out. Now, plus for an exclusive experience, visit royfield.com and sign up to our newsletter now this will give you access to the live podcast recordings on zoom where if you are in the audience you can engage and ask questions with our expert guests so join us on this journey of exploration and understanding of the world of politics in the us in the uk and globally subscribe and sign up today This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where I look at US and UK politics, compared and contrasted with a little bit of kind of geopolitics as well. I'm currently back home in Birmingham. We are thrilled to have Emily Fry from the Resolution Foundation with us, a leading economist, and she's known for her insightful analysis and forward thinking strategies. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the UK's economic strategy and where fundamentally it's gone wrong. We want to look at how it can enhance growth in these challenging times. We're going to discuss innovative approaches which could be used to stimulate the economy. We're going to delve into the intricacies of fiscal policies. Moreover, we're going to be taking a close look at the efforts to reduce inequality, something which I talk about in literally every episode. The Resolution Foundation released an enormous report on the state 
of the UK economy, what might be done to sort it out. It's worth just having a look at some of the issues. This perhaps is the biggest one of all. This is showing you real earnings. So adjusted for inflation since 2000, they went up and up and up. And if they carried on in that vein, look, instead, look at what happened post-2008, something very different. That's basically the kind of flatlining, the stagnation, to the extent that now there's this big gap. So we're all worse off to the tune of about £201. And that's not the only issue. Look at the gap between rich and The UK is much more unequal than many other countries uh, around Europe, particularly Northern Europe. But so too is this. This is showing you home ownership by generation. You can see, look, people born in the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, as they get older, they get more home ownership. So more people owning their homes. But look what happens now when you're talking about kind of millennials and you're talking about those born in the 80s, those born in the 90s, they're not able to get on the housing ladder quite so quickly. That's a big issue. Potentially you need more homes as a result of that. And so too is this. This is looking at the gap between major cities and the smaller towns and regions in different parts of Europe. So you've got France, you've got Germany, uh, you've got Spain, you've got um, uh, Italy as well. Have a look at the UK, okay? Have a look at these bubbles. So there you've got London, obviously, Manchester, there in the middle, Powerson, other parts uh, of the UK at the bottom end. But it's this gap that is quite concerning. A bigger gap between London and the rest. Doubtless there's going to be more debate on this as the election approaches. How can economic growth be inclusive? What measures can be used to implement and to ensure that prosperity reaches all corners of society? Wolf, Emily, have you got all the answers for these uh, thorny questions? Um, I'll do my best today. I'm sure you're going to challenge me with some pretty insightful questions. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Podcast. (laughs) First, tell us about the Resolution Foundation. Who are they? Where are you? How long have you been up and running? So the Resolution Foundation is a think tank that focuses on living standards. In the UK, we've got a focus on low to middle income people. And our goal is to raise living standards. And we'd like to do that through economic research and then economic policy. And so the conversation that we'll be having today will be largely based on the results of our Economy 2030 inquiry, which was looking at what the economy could look like in 2030 and beyond if we start to make changes now. And we did that in partnership with the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE. All right. There was a document which you guys had out at the start of December. We're going to use that as the basis of our conversation. Now, the report highlights the UK's struggle with stagnant wage growth, high inequality in the regional disparities. Somebody who's from the West Midlands, boy, do I see it when I go into London. I feel like I'm traveling into a different country, quite literally. So, and the report also emphasizes the impact of uh, these issues on different aspects of society, including the younger generation, etc. Tell us about that uh, report How long did it take for you guys to put together and why do you think it was timely to put it out now? So this report has come as the ending report as part of this Economy 2030 inquiry. And it's based on about 70 different papers from colleagues across Resolution Foundation, but also across the Centre of Economic Performance, but also some essays by various international authors where we think that we can learn from different contexts, say Denmark's flexible wage system, New Zealand's fair pay agreements, which we can all get into the details of the labor market later on, as well as some US colleagues. So Danny Roderick penned a piece about applying some of his theories around productivism to the UK context as well. So all of those different aspects have informed 
our final findings and this final kind of piece and report that we're talking about. Where should we start in terms of understanding the issues that Britain is going through economically? As people who listen to this podcast know, literally every other podcast, I'm somewhere else. I spend half my time in California, spend a third of my time in Toronto, uh, Birmingham, London. I I travel throughout Europe. With my uneducated eyes, the UK outside of the southeast is so much poorer than all the other places that I go to. Immeasurably poorer in terms of infrastructure and just take-home pay in terms of households, etc., than, let's say, California, though California has higher wealth inequality, immeasurably poorer than someone like Toronto. So where should we start? What are the key indicators which we can give for Britain in 2023, which clearly say where we are, without me just saying things feel a bit shit in Birmingham? Yes. So I think, obviously, we're at the end of, or in the middle still, of um, a cost of living crisis. And we've seen massive rises in energy, massive rises in food prices. And now we're seeing the housing crunch really feed through because we've seen rising interest rates start to feed through into people's mortgages and also are seeing incredible rent rises. And and that's feeding out. And so we see things like record levels of homelessness over the last couple of months in the UK. So really quite very concerning, deep poverty that's happening across the UK. And so if we take a step back from the cost of living crisis and have a bit of a think about how have we got into this situation, given that the UK likes to see ourselves as a relatively rich and advanced economy. Actually, if we look at some of the things that you're talking about today, if we start with some of the international comparisons, and then maybe I'll give a bit of a, a journey of, of how we might be in that situation. So if you look at our kind of peers in France or in Germany or in uh, the US or Canada or Australia, so countries that are either Anglo-Saxon or kind of European countries where we would typically compare ourselves to them, you can see that the middle income people in the UK are a lot poorer than their than their French and German kind of compatriots. So it's about 9% poorer than their French counterparts, about 20% poorer than their German par- counterparts. And a whopping 60% poorer than their US counterparts. So that's the kind of the middle incomes in the UK. But then if you look at the left... Just on that, Emily, is there a point where the our economy starts to lag? Is it 2007 or is this kind of structural from like 1945? Yeah, so we can talk about how we get there. So what you actually see in the data is you can look at how rich we are as a country in many different ways. And you can look at that in GDP, but we like to think about it as GDP per capita and think about how that feeds into our living standards or what that represents about our living standards. So if you look at our GDP per capita and our productivity, we were catching up with some of our peer countries up until around the mid 2000s. And then we start to lose that catch up that, that we had been gaining on it, gaining on the US, gaining on France, gaining on Germany. And then we start to see kind of decline since the mid 2000s. And so if you use different types of data, you can start to see that kind of coming in. And and the first indicator of that was starting to see incomes not rising by quite as much as they had been before. And then we saw that the, the GDP obviously fall off after the financial crisis. But the reason that productivity matters is because there's a direct link between productivity and wages. 
And that link has actually held pretty strongly in the UK, unlike the US, where you have seen more of the share of productivity growth go to the firm. So keeping that in profits rather than distributing it to workers. Whereas in the UK, the link between productivity and wages has remained pretty strong. And so the fact that we haven't seen a productivity hasn't really risen by nearly as much as our comparator countries in the last decade and a half, that really means that we've been paid a lot less than we otherwise would have been paid. So an example of this is if we kind of project forward our wages from where they were just before the financial crisis and look at what they would have looked like if they'd kept growing at a pre-financial crisis rate. Uh, A typical worker today would be almost £11,000 richer every year. So you'd be paid £11,000 more every year in 2023. And it really does mean that you end up with a lot less wages. That's very difficult for working age households who typically get a lot of their share of their income from wages. But also for other households, if you think about pensioners, they've been paid through the triple lock. So through, through their state benefits go up in line with the triple lock, which includes earnings as one of those kind of locks that, that they're being protected on. 60% of our listeners are not UK, so you're going to have to explain triple lock. Okay. <laughs> you don't know what the triple lock is. But the, the triple lock is, is, is a kind of mechanism that was introduced, um, I think, about a decade ago. Um, and it w- was really representing um, the, the issues that, that pensioners had been facing uh, with increasing poverty. And obviously, the government wanted to tackle the fact that there was increasing pensioner poverty. And so the triple lock looked at how every year they would upgrade the kind of state pension that pensioners receive. And the three locks are kind of inflation. So they would either raise it by inflation or they would raise it by earnings growth, or they would raise it by a a minimum percentage. And so whatever was higher of those three, it would be raised by. But the kind of trick is that the rest of the working age population who received benefits didn't see that lock in place. So they've been seeing raises in their benefits in line with inflation, which has obviously led to quite different outcomes for pensioners and working age population in the UK. All right. The key aspects of the report, high inequality, low growth and with the high inequality combination, stalled progress for young workers, underutilization of youth talent, regional income disparities, poor working conditions, lagging corporate investment, increasing tax burden, pessimist, pessimism about the direction of the country. Boom. That's fundamentally it. Now, I'm much more of a historian than I am anybody who understands economics. And one thing that's really quite marked about Britain at the end of the Victorian era is a panic by liberals and conservatives, the two big parties at the time, that the country's falling behind the United States and Germany. And then in hindsight, we look back at that period and what the US and Germany go through is like a second industrial revolution, the combustion engine that really like fuels that really the 20th century. We have the Industrial Revolution and steam power, but that second wave doesn't happen in Britain. And one of the key things that like liberal economists say back then is that we are not investing enough in British industry. Seems to me that a hundred and what, 30 years later, we're still saying the same thing. Why is it that chronically Britain 
doesn't invest in British industry. What is happening there that we still, 100 plus years later, still make the same mistake? So, yes, you've I hit on kind of the key issue why we think that our productivity growth has been half the OECD average over the last 15 years. And that is because year after year, our businesses haven't been investing in kind of the, the capital and infrastructure that we really need in the UK. There's also an issue with how our public investment is set up. But if we focus on kind of the business side of things for the moment, I think, as you said, people like to look to other countries and say, oh, actually, like Germans manufacturing economy, that seems like a really great model. Why don't we do that? Or, oh, let's have our financial services are really strong. So let's just focus everything on financial services and ignore everything else. And I think what what we're arguing is that we really need to focus on our strengths as a country, but we often misdiagnose what our strengths actually are. And we have these very broad-based strengths across a number of services sectors. There are things like creative industries. We have a really strong BBC and Channel 4, which have really enabled our creative industries to, to be started here. And, and it means that big name movies in 2023 that came out in 2023 were actually filmed in the UK. Barbie was filmed in the UK. The Rings of Power was filmed in the UK. So you have these real kind of big blockbuster film industries that are, that are being based here. But we also see a lot of strengths in a ton of other kind of services industries and ones that we don't often say that we're proud of. And, and they're things like we have a lot of great architects. We have a really good engineering sector. We have very strong consultants as well. And we also do have a, a strong financial services center, as well as things like information and communication. And by like recognizing what our economy looks like as the first step of thinking about why do we need this investment and, and you know what's gone wrong with it. And some people might say, oh, actually, like you're a services economy. And that means you don't need to invest in your strengths because it, it's lighter on foot. But Investment also includes things like research and development. And that's something that's definitely applicable to our services industries, as well as traditional manufacturing ones that you might think about. Also, we need things like offices. We need that, like you said, in, in Birmingham, as an example, you said that the, earlier that the city centre in Birmingham is where you're seeing the industries. That is what you would expect. But the Birmingham city centre is actually really tiny compared to the city centre of London. But all of those services businesses that might be operating in Birmingham, there's not actually a ton of space for them to be operating in, in that area. And there's not and it's quite hard for people to actually access the, the centre of Birmingham very easily, particularly because there's not been enough investment from the public sector, which kind of intersects with this private sector question uh, in terms of things like the tram infrastructure and the, the bus services to make sure that people have an easy way so they can get to some really great office jobs and have a, a larger city centre to, to operate in. That is a wonderful segue, and you should be—you're obviously looking at my notes, right? <laughs> two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, the Great Recession, financial crisis—it happens globally. There's an overheating of the American property market, which then feeds into the world economy. Everything splat. Okay, then two thousand and ten. We have a new Conservative administration in the UK that basically say we need to pay back the debt, austerity. Is this like the double kind of break on the British economy that because we're not actually um, investing 
in public services that actually this has been a key uh, break on economic growth. And instead of us becoming fitter, leaner, because we're paying back our debts, we're going to have more money that actually we've had 13 years worth of, in effect, underinvestment from central government, which means that we're poorer, hence wealth inequality, sorry, income inequality. I always get the two mixed up. Income inequality is exacerbated. So I think that there's a few different things going on that are hindering our, our growth with the, the public sector. One of those, which kind of linking to our previous conversation, is this the public investment. And so it's not only that we have quite low public investment in the UK relative to kind of other OECD economies. In fact, if we'd been investing at the level of an average OECD economy for the last 20 years, we'd have 500 billion more capital investment in the UK. And and just to put that into terms that make sense when you're talking about billions, that there needs to be a tram expansion in Birmingham and a kind of bus service expansion in Birmingham. That would cost about 5 billion to make it much more easy for for people to access kind of their their jobs in a reasonable amount of time. It's not reasonable that people have to commute over 45 minutes to to get to work and spend so much of their day doing that. So if you had this 5 billion investment in Birmingham, you could grow that. That's 500 billion, therefore, is 100 100 times that that investment. So it's 100 tram networks in Birmingham. Um, that that we're lacking in the last 20 years. And so we've had this kind of low public investment for a while, but we've also had really volatile public investment. And that's in part of how our public investment kind of levels get set. They can be changed very often. It means that sometimes you'll give a, a department a particular amount of investment that they have to do, but they have to do it in that year. And they scramble around looking for kind of projects that they have off the shelf that fulfill the requirements of that investment. And it leads to persistent underspends. So it means that 20% of the investment that's actually allocated to departments doesn't actually get spent at the end of the day because we have this volatility in, in kind of chopping and changing of investment when we face downturns like in kind of the financial crisis. So that's one key area that, you know, that lack of public investment, that volatility of public investment it has meant that that's hanging back our growth. And we think that there are some kind of ways that, that you can reform that, both raising the level of investment that to, that you would want the, to that OECD average, but also making commitments in a way that, that would last and would mean that departments actually can plan out when they're going to make those investments and make them make sense for them. And so that is a problem that we could look to the last 10 years, but actually it's been a problem for for much, much longer than that. And ever since the 1970s, whenever we've faced a downturn, the government has responded by cutting that public investment. And so this has been an ongoing issue in how our government kind of structures its planning around investment that we should look to change and move forward. Mm. It is absolutely stunning when, when you look back at the civic history of the United Kingdom that actually the heyday is the end of the Victorian era. That's when we are putting so much money into our cities, putting first gas lighting, then electric lighting. We we run this London and and the kind of storage system is under the embankment. That's actually when we understand that the cities are engines of the economy and you need to keep them primed 
actually for workers, I'm far from a capitalist, but there's a really strong argument that if you, if you look after the workers so that they can go and be the, the means of production in a capitalistic way, that actually that really does pump prime the, the whole economy. And that end of that Victorian era, and whether you, we want to talk about what he's done in London, the stunning public works we've done in London or in Birmingham or in Manchester, it's actually the Victorian age. And then you have the liberal government of, that comes in 1905 that then put on the, all those social policies. We always talk about Attlee in 1945. Actually, 40 years beforehand is when that real paradigm shift is made and it's because of the end of that Victorian era. This is Britain's GDP per capita which stands at $46,400. At first glance, this GDP per capita seems like a fairer and more accurate measure of a country's wealth, as it's calculated on an individual basis. But sometimes this wealth is merely an illusion. Britain's economic growth history is a fascinating journey that spans centuries, marked by periods of rapid expansion, innovation and transformation. From its agrarian beginnings to the heights of the Industrial Revolution and the complexities of the modern global economy, the country boasts a handful of elite universities and companies that keep Britain on the cutting edge of new technologies, such as AI and vaccines. The wealth is heavily concentrated in the much-visited Southeast, making up 47% of its GDP, with 37% of Britain's population. This area features everything from splendid country houses to prestigious schools and well-endowed Oxbridge colleges, along with well-paid jobs at global companies. But look outside this golden world and you discover a different picture. Britain's economy has staggered since the financial crisis over a decade ago in 2008, with weak productivity and low pay. Recently, it lost its position as the world's fifth largest economy to India. The past few months have been rough for the United Kingdom. Let's go on to, before we, we say, you know what, we're in the poop, but we can get out of the poop. And here is the recipe for that. Let's go through the mire that we're in. How are we not utilising the youth and, and young workers? Why are we spectacularly bad at that as opposed to other advanced economies? Because I actually thought this was the one area where Britain did quite well. When I go to Italy or Spain, Something which young Italians always say is they always marvel at the UK and say, you can be whatever you want to be. There's so much more freedom, etc. So how have we even got that wrong as well? So I think one of, there's a few different challenges facing kind of the generational question, starting with kind of the workforce. I think that the, the key issue that, that we're seeing is the fact that we are really good at training people in reading and writing skills and, and we have very good internationally comparable rates there and we should be proud of that but what we see is this weird drop off at 18 and part of that the issue there is our qualification system doesn't really set us up very well for the economy that we are we have a lot of people who have GCSE and A-level uh, qualifications I'm not sure what their US equivalent is there maybe like an SAT so a, a, a kind of pre-college qualification we have a lot of people with that. We also have quite a lot of people with post-college, so a degree level qualification, which is good because we are a services economy and we do need a lot of highly skilled people to work in those jobs. So we do need a lot of graduates and we'll continue to need them. But where we have a huge gap is people who have sub the sub-degree level qualification, 
we've got a couple of really good examples like in nursing where you have a couple of years of training and that would lead to this what's called a level four or level five qualification and it's those in between qualifications that we're really sorely lacking and it means that if you are a young person coming out of school or high school it, you're in this pool of backforce that all has this high school level education but we aren't providing the right kind of in-between qualifications that people can do these skilled jobs that have really good career progression and so that's a key challenge there and and means that if you look at kind of cohort wages millennials are now paid less where they are it, it, after the kind of 15 years of graduating than the Gen X cohorts were before them. So you're seeing less career progression in terms of your wage rises across different generational cohorts. Another issue that really is a very British problem is our housing system. And so we have some of the most expensive housing per square foot of most of kind of any other OECD country, if you look at some of the comparison data. And so when we're talking about the issues with our incomes and the fact that kind of our middle income people are poorer than those in the US, France, Germany, that is a lot of that is caused by the fact that people have to pay so much for where they live. And that's true across, in particular, for renters in the UK who have to pay huge proportions of their income just to rent properties. And traditionally, it's been that younger cohorts save up for a mortgage and then buy a house. But with each generation, we're seeing that happen less and less. And so you're not seeing those younger cohorts actually buy buy properties at nearly the same rates that, you know, the boomer generation or Gen X did before them. And, and, and surely that's got to be one of the biggest indictments and of realism, which kind of brought in with Thatcher that we're supposed to be this homeowning democracy. And I think it was three plus years ago, I, I figured exactly when home ownership as a percentage actually went down. So surely that's got to be a damning indictment of, of the last 40 years. Now, just on that, how much of our inflated property prices, rent rent that we have to pay, is actually down to the fact that our country's pretty small, so land is actually at a premium? How much of it is down to that, can we say? Yeah, so the land point is is such an interesting one. And the UK is a dense country. We are a very dense country. Um, we also have quite a large share of our land is is protected, um, which is great for environmental reasons. But we are the only G7 country who hasn't actually seen any increase in built up land per capita over the last 30 years, basically. So since 1990, we've seen almost no increase in built up land per capita. And that is in contrast to other very dense countries like Japan and also other countries that have a large share of their land is protected, like Germany. So it's not necessarily those reasons that are holding us back from kind of building, obviously, environmentally sustainable and other and beautiful built up land, but we haven't been really building. And so that definitely is a, a real reason that we just don't have enough housing that's been built and it's not. It's not anything fundamental to the UK as to why we shouldn't have that housing being built, but it is something that that we've been lacking at over the last 30 years. And again, can we just really assign that to Thatcher and the mid-80s when she said basically no more council housing, or at least they put so many hurdles on councils to be able to have social housing. Is that fundamentally where we started to go 
off the rails with this or is there another period we, we could actually look at? You're definitely pulling out my historian <laughs> as much as my historian can be. I think that this has definitely been an issue for many years in the UK as to when it actually started. I'm not 100% sure when it started. I can tell by the grey in my beard I'm a little bit older than you, so I, I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, things are really hard for younger workers. We don't give them the post-educational training that they need and the value of their work we remunerate them less than other comparable countries which means that it's harder for them to save up to own their own homes and then we laden them with the most expensive property prices compared to comparable countries and and then rental prices young people kind of screwed one more poop type question. Why are we in this mire before we go through to solutions? Because fundamentally, I'm always a glass is half full, right? I mean, to get out of bed if I didn't actually believe that. Why do we have such terrible regional wealth disparities? Cue this up, okay? People on this podcast have heard me say this ad. I'm going to give you one answer. And then this is purely a- anecdotal. If I want to make it in fashion in America, I go to New York. I want to make it in movies, I go to Los Angeles. I want to make it in software, I go to San Francisco. Aeronautics, Seattle. Politics, Washington. Finance, New York. Car industry, bleh, Detroit, let's say. Okay. The answer for literally all of those questions in the UK is London. Okay. We are re- ridiculously over-centralised. Uh, where is your office? Following you from London. <laughs> there you go. Right, the answer for everything. And if I'm in Italy, politics would be Rome, um, fashion, Milan, car industry, Turin. If, if in Germany, it, finance would be Frankfurt, politics, Berlin. Car industry, I don't know, Stuttgart or whatever. Beer, it's Munich, whatever, right? It's diverse, right? So 
why have we ended up in this country with ev- the answer for everything being London? And then please tell me the other reasons why the southeast drives so much of the UK economy. Yes. So you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. We have enormous regional disparities in the UK. They have been persistent since essentially the deindustrialization that left scarring in some of our kind of major industrial cities. So I'm thinking Birmingham, I'm thinking Manchester, Newcastle. And so that huge and rapid decline in those kind of sectors has left scarring. And the decline did impact London too. So it's not that London was completely safe from that deindustrialization, but London has been able to adapt to a lot of these kind of high growth tradable services industries in a way that we haven't quite seen other areas being quite as quick as. And it's not to say that the, that all areas need to adapt to tradable services. We're going to keep on having car industries in Birmingham. We're going to keep on having chemicals and cars industries in Cheshire and Derby. And those are going to continue. And, and we should want them to continue to be part of our economy. But they are at the rate that they are. They're, they're a lot smaller than they were. They're about kind of 10%-ish of the UK's economy now. So 90% is in services. And so... What's lo- what? So what does that look like in terms of our economic geography? So London's productivity means that, that there are no other English cities with productivity that are above the UK average. Places like Birmingham and Manchester are in the teens uh, below the, the UK average um, in productivity. And so what I would like to say in, in the spirit of optimism is that offers a big opportunity and there is no kind of path to a, a more productive Britain without those cities actually becoming much more productive and having uh, much uh, like buzzing economies and, and attracting uh, much more investment, etc. So on the flip side, it does mean that there is a huge opportunity to focus on cities like Manchester and Birmingham that did see a lot of that scarring in the 1980s and 1990s. Yes. So... I've forgotten the other half of you of your question. I was waffling. I was, I was on my soapbox. Don't, don't worry. So we are now on to propose solutions when stagnation, and you have focused on second cities. And and as a brand, yeah. I get really upset. There's only one second city, and obviously that's Birmingham. But I understand what you mean. Major cities outside of London. So your Birmingham's, your Manchester's, your Cardiff's, your Leeds's, etc. Um, and you, and and the report says we need to. Uh, focus on improving productivity but that also means massive public investment isn't it because we have the agglomeration effect in london one of the reasons why london productivity is so much higher is because the great transport system you can get from one end of london to another in in less than an hour which you actually can't do somewhere like new york funnily enough the public transport system is much worse there you definitely can't do it in somewhere, I'm trying to think, from one area, one side of the Bay Area where I live half the time. How are we going to get to a, a, a position whereby we have a government that is going to not just say we need to level up and we're going to chuck a little bit more money into your Manchesters and let's say your Sunderlands right, and your, and your Glasgow's and actually say no, for the country to be fit for the 21st century, we need massive public investment so that we can enhance public service industries because workers will be able to get from point A to point B. And, and one of the practical ways of doing that is to have reincorporate public transport 
which I know Manchester has, has just done and Liverpool has just done. But is it can't be piecemeal. It needs to be, we're all in this together. Let's roll up our sleeves. This is what we're going to do. Please, because you and I, we speak the same language, sister. The glass is half full, but how are we going to do that? Yes, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of the efforts around things like levelling up have just clearly not gone far enough and, and have resulted in kind of small pots that, um, haven't really uh, haven't changed our economic geography um, and we really need to think a lot bigger in terms of uh, uh, how we're going to do that and that also means being pretty focused and very determined to make sure that we do get our get that investment up and make sure that those economies are thriving and so if you think about Birmingham and Manchester like you said Manchester has had a big investment in its tram network but we really can't think that means it's job done at there, there needs to be a lot more investment in kind of Manchester's uh, public transport network, as well as in Birmingham's transport network, to make sure that highly skilled people that we've trained up through world class universities stay either kind of they're trained up in Manchester and then they stay in Manchester after that, or are attracted from other parts of the country. All these highly uh, educated, skilled people come live in these cities and uh, can commute into the center um, in a reasonable commute. And so we did actually do some comparisons with um, some US cities to say, hypothetically, what would it look like to um, increase, make sure that the people could access the city center, access their jobs in a reasonable amount of time via car? What would that look like? And, and at the moment, the status quo is car. So about 70% people, seventy of people in both Manchester and Birmingham are commuting by car at the moment. So what does that look like? It means that you need, if you look at kind of cities like Denver and Portland, you need a, a so much more um, roads. You would need so many more p- car parks that you would actually be car parking the, over the entire city centre of, of Birmingham. <laughs> So it's, 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 it's not realistic um, to have a car-oriented strategy. We're also very congested in those cities already um, and, you know, have bad air quality problems too, which have negative effects on different communities as well. So cars are not the answer, so we really need to have the, the public transport. But we also need to make sure that we're building housing and that we're building both housing but also the social housing to make sure that if we are raising incomes by having these agglomeration effects from these services, businesses in these cities, that we're also making sure that people aren't pushed out of those cities, that people can earn a good wage in those cities, even if they aren't necessarily working all in the same sectors. And so another part of our of our discussion is really thinking about what should like those jobs, which aren't in these kind of highly skilled tradable sectors that aren't necessarily the jobs that are creating economic growth, but they should be very well paid. They should have good standards uh, that are reasonable. And what we saw from both focus groups, but also in the data was that if you're a shift worker, half of shift workers don't have a week's notice for their shift. So it's very insecure. You're not really sure when you're going to be working next. You also don't have access to things like sick pay. The government sick pay is just forty-four pounds for the first week that you're that you're unwell. And higher income jobs often often will give you paid sick pay, but that doesn't happen in lower paid jobs. So really, leveling up those those standards, which are different across uh, the economy, is also really important of a part of a strategy for the cities, but also for the economy as a whole. 
in the UK and making sure that we're improving the floor that people are working from. A couple of things which I thought were really quite interesting. He says in in the report, management and ownership reforms, encouraging long-term investments and worker representation in decision-making. Now, I know it's something that goes on in Germany uh, much more than it does in, in the UK. Explain that for us and how that's going to help productivity. There we're thinking about the business investment, which we've discussed earlier, is very weak in the UK. One of the reasons that we think is weak is the corporate governance reason. Our, our managers um, and leaders of companies in the UK have much less um, pressure from above, so from shareholders, Uh, to make sure that they're making these kind of productive long-term decisions, which are things like investing. And they also don't have very much pressure from below, so from their workforce. So whereas it's normal in Europe to have kind of a worker representation on your boards, that that isn't something that we have in the UK. And it is something that through increased dialogue between workers and management, uh, you do see increased planning for the long-term and so increase things around things like business investment. So we think that kind of having a, a mandatory 20% workers on boards would in fact help the productivity as well of, of the UK economy. We also think that kind of a, a variety of shareholder reform. So we don't really have blockholder shareholders. So a single owner of a company in the UK, unlike a, a lot of other, unlike a lot of other countries. And we are quite have a very low proportion of our firms that have a single blockholder shareholder. And that matters because they might want to help the, help the management think about the long term. And they also have the power to do that because they own such a, a larger proportion of that firm. So they are able to increase that dialogue and increase the opportunities to invest for the long term. So we think kind of reforms around our pension system, which has moved away from direct investing and towards tracker funds and things like that over the last 30, 40 years and help them invest back in the UK. And and that is inspired by some of the US government pension schemes, uh, as well as some of the Canadian pension schemes as well. Purely just me being super anecdotal again, but there has to be a link between income inequality, wealth inequality in the shareholder economy, the economy with a lot of shareholders. Again, just purely anecdotal, if you go back to like to the 1950s and the American kind of paradigm where dad came home and, and took off his hat and then mum had just made him dinner and the two kids ran up to him, they sat down and watched TV and they had a white picket fence. That was a time when I think the average CEO only earned something like seven or nine times what the average worker owned. Then if we take that into a British perspective, whether you were a bus driver, there would be an annual Christmas party which you could take your kids to. There was summer schools for children of factory workers. There was a subsidised kind of canteen, which also meant that there was less worker turnover because workers bought into that company and that company culture. And it seems to me one of the breakdowns that we've had in the, in the last, let's say, 40 years is completely that and it's because of shareholders wanting dividends that actually what companies don't do is actually invest back in in workers and it goes off to that one percent two percent i forget that people fundamentally actually own shares so you have this kind of 
blood-sucking element to capitalism, which isn't dispersing the wealth and the benefits of that actually much more widely, but then sucking out the profit and putting that to a smaller cohort. That isn't too antithetical a way of looking at what you're talking about, is it? I think one of the key things when we're talking about wealth in in the UK in particular, we've seen massive rises in wealth over the last few decades. And we haven't seen a big rise in how that wealth is taxed. And so the amount that we're taxing wealth is in pound terms, pretty constant over time, whereas the actual wealth has gone up from three to eight times GDP. That that kind of huge amount of wealth um, is a kind of really important part of the story. But then when we're thinking about what is the makeup of that wealth, a lot of it is in things like housing and land um, in the UK. And so when we're thinking about how we need to think about the tax system going forward, it does look like our fiscal forecasts are highly uncertain, but it does look like taxes will rise over the next few years. We have a lot of debt interest. We've increased our debt during the pandemic to pay for really important policy then. But it does mean that our debt interest is up. We also have public spending needs. We also, there's not even to mention kind of net zero or the net zero transition, which will also require a lot of investment over the next couple of decades, or even demographic trends, which are a whole other conversation. But it does look like for those reasons, our tax take will increase over time. But when we're thinking about kind of our taxes, we should be thinking not just, okay, how can we tweak the system to get a little bit more here or a little bit more there, but truly to think about how do we make our tax system a lot fairer. And part of that is thinking about kind of the areas within wealth where we're not taxing fairly. And so if you take a landlord, for example, they don't pay the same tax on their rental income as the renter is paying on their earnings. So one policy that could help level that up is charging the the, uh, landlords the same rate that the renter is actually paying on their rental uh, on their kind of to the landlords so so that the landlords are paying the same rate of tax as the renters themselves and so there are various ways that we can think about more properly taxing wealth and making our tax system as a whole much more fairer in order to meet the, the needs that we will have around public services around transitioning to net zero that mean that our tax take is likely to rise your solution for f- fixing this is much more realistic than mine. I just want us to go back to the 1950s. Don't just get rid of all these companies having shareholder dividends and just siphoning off funds because you know what? Then they just spend it on uh, making life better for the workers. But then again, I- I'm-, I'm an old socialist like that. So what we should do, because t- time is oppressing, I want to look at just one more thing Then we need to uh, wrap this up. Uh, and you slightly touched on this with your last answer. Strengthening public and private finances, balancing higher growth and taxes to support investment and public services. You've half done that because I see you just, you've got an eye on my notes. Well done. Is there, are there any other things which we can do to help get Britain out of the mire? Yes, absolutely. There's a ton of things. And if you read Ending Stagnation, we'll, we'll see some of them. But I think one of the key things is that, unlike the tax side of things, is thinking about where do we want our economy to be as a whole? And so when we're thinking about the tax system, it can influence things like economic change, for example, and how change happens in our system. And the tax system is a really big lever that the government has to make sure that change 
is happening, but it is also happening in a way that's fair. And so if we think about if we think about why change matters to the UK, change matters because if workers move jobs, then they're much more likely to get a pay rise. If they move jobs uh, to a different sector, then they're even more likely to get a pay rise. Um, whereas we've not seen very much, our, our job churn has, has really been falling over the last several years. And one of the things that we see within the, the tax system for the labor market is that we tax different types of income differently. So if you're a self-employed person in the UK, you're taxed less than if you're an employed person in the UK. And that might be fine if you think actually all, all the self-employed people are entrepreneurs and they're creating kind of new businesses and it's developing the economy as a whole. But actually what you see more generally is often um, people are often kind of solo traders, which are, who are paid actually less than the median in terms of their wages, but also that some kind of more aggressive companies are calling people self-employed to get tax breaks when they are actually employees. And by being an employee, you have a lot more rights in terms of your notice periods, in terms of in terms of other kind of like minimum standards that you have access to. You have much more rights in terms of uh, access to kind of enforcement of those standards. And so we're incentivizing this kind of strange system in our tax system that, that's encouraging people to, to be self-employed perfectly rationally, but we're not thinking about what that means for the economy as a whole and for the fact that actually we want people to be, for the economy as a whole, moving into highly productive jobs, to be changing jobs, and also to be and also to be taxed fairly for that and not to be necessarily encouraging one form of working over another very last question let's just say that the next party that comes into power in 2024 is going to eat hook line and sinker the document ending stagnation they go yes we got we're going to do this how long would it take for us to see the benefits of ending stagnation in terms of reigniting the British economy? What What's a reasonable forecast in that? Not everything can is easy to be done like immediately or will have immediate payoffs. Positive. Keir Starmer's, yeah, we're going to do the whole lot. Right. So come on. <laughs> and so I think in this strategy that, that we can't with does feed off it each other. And I think if you look at the vision of, of where it could, where the economy could be, if we were, if our median household income was actually the same as a group of countries that are really similar to us, Australia, Canada, Netherlands, France, and Germany, then the average, the kind of median household income would be £8,300 higher. And so when we're thinking about where the UK economy could be, that's not unachievable at all to, to be similar to those types of countries and the benefit of actually falling behind in terms of our productivity growth over the last 15 years or so means that there's so much catch-up potential for the UK we don't have to be as innovative as the US we don't have to be as equal as Norway and the Scandinavian countries we just have to do a bit better and be a bit more like the countries we like to compare ourselves to and that Okay, this is what I'm hearing. It's taken us 15 years to get into this mess. It's going to take us 15 years to get out. Would that be reasonable? 
I think that the changes do take time. It's not like on day one you can have income growth, but I think that, and there are some kind of short-term benefits and then longer-term benefits. We looked uh, over the next 15 years or so, we think that we can achieve a lot of that catch up with those similar economies. And I think what's key there is poverty rates would be much lower than they would have otherwise been. Our inequality, which at the moment is the highest of any European country, would fall uh, a bit as well. So I think these very sticky problems that the UK has faced over this time would start resolving themselves and lead us to be a bit more similar to those countries that we like to compare us to. Emily, we'd be great again. We put the great back in Britain. And on that note, Emily Fry, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and explaining some of the problems and also some of the solutions to the chronic sick man of Europe, which is Britain and our economic malaise. Emily, tell us again who you work for, where people can find your organisation that you work for online and on the socials. So I'm Emily Fry. I work for the Resolution Foundation. You can find us, we're mainly on Twitter at Res Foundation or and find me, Fry Emily, on Twitter as well. Uh, will you come back on again? Of course. If you invite me, if you'll have me. Listen, you'll be on every week now. <laughs> Good people. I have said this in the previous episode, but I'm going to say this again for so many more. We are now putting these these podcast episodes up on YouTube. So if you want to see how bald I am, and it's pretty bald, and how grey I am, pretty grey, you can see me moving on your laptop as opposed to just the audio on your smartphone. Please don't forget, though, that we do need your love by sending it, and you can do that by writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. Many more people listen to this podcast on Spotify than I, I care to admit. It's about 38%. It's massive. We're big on Spotify. We want to get even bigger on the YouTubes. So if you want to see what I look like, what Emily Fry looks like, go on to YouTube. And even if you don't say you're going to watch every episode, go and subscribe because the algorithm gods over there on YouTube love that. It, things happen and then we get more views. So just subscribe if you do nothing else. This has been me, Royfield Brown, talking about a topic which is so close to my heart, the relative poverty of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland and it's for shame, the country that gave birth to the Industrial Revolution is so falling behind many of its comparable nations and what we need is not just one party but parties to come together and admit that so that for the next 10, 15 years we have a consensus. One of the things which really grew this country and really strengthened the working class and the lower middle class was a political consensus from 1945 all the way to 1979 that actually public services and investing in cities and investing in people was incredibly important. Pulled people out of poverty. Don't get me wrong. In that period, we did some things wrong. We absolutely did. We probably built too many council blocks and whatever and forgetting that most people want to live in traditional homes. We did things wrong, but ultimately we pulled the great mass of British people out of poverty and we gave them economic stability. We, and what we have done since the 1980s is absolutely to erode that. We need to not say no to entrepreneurial aspiration, but we need to say yes to workers getting a fair remuneration 
for the day's work that they do. And we need to say yes to people on modest incomes being able to thrive. And that doesn't mean that we need to get rid of all the bankers and bankers' bonuses, but we do need some level of redistribution of wealth. That's what we're all about here. And thank you, Emily Fry from the Resolution Foundation for coming on and telling us, by golly, there is a blueprint for it. That's been me, Royfield Brown. Speak to Emily Fry. Ta-ra. Look after yourself. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.